We're going to be in the book of Philemon this morning. So there's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. That acronym is Go Eat Popcorn. And then after that, there's five books to start with a T. So the five T's. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and then Titus. And then Hebrews. But right before Hebrews is this one chapter letter called Philemon. Just between Titus and Hebrews. clicker, but I don't know what I did with it either. Oh, this is a mess. Oh, what a mess. I don't know what I did with it. I had it right here. Oh, boy. I don't know what to tell you guys. Unbelievable. All right, well, um, did you find it? <laughs> All right. Yes. Thank you, Gene. <laughs> well, uh, to, to approach this letter, we have to go backwards in time a little bit to talk about the context of why this letter was written. And so... Uh, if we're looking on the map there, you should be able to, to find Italy on the left and with the boot hill, so you should be able to see Rome. And then as you move across the map there, you should see Greece, and then the Aegean Sea, and then finally uh, Asia Minor. And so you want to be able to find Rome and then Ephesus and Colossae. Now, you see Colossae, have you found it? That's the most important city in what we're going to be talking about. Um, I don't know how to pronounce that word. I looked it up, and you know how you type in the word and put pronunciation? Well, there's Colossae, Colossi, and Colossi. And I have no idea which one it is. I don't know if anybody really does know uh, Colossae. Well, before this letter was ever written, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was on his third missionary journey. And he came to the city of Ephesus, and this was a, a major city. And he stayed there for two years. And the whole time he was there, he was teaching and preaching. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 19 that everybody in that province, you and I, when we think of Asia, we think of China and you know Vietnam but this area there was the province of Asia and so we call it Asia Minor it's modern day Turkey but the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 19 that when Paul was there teaching in Ephesus for a period of two years that the entire province heard the gospel now if you go about a hundred miles to the east of Ephesus you run into Colossae and that's a there's a river there called the Lycus River, and it's a valley. And in this valley, there's these three cities. So there's Colossae, Laodicea, which we know from the book of Revelation, and then Hierapolis. So there's these three cities there. They're about 100 miles away from Ephesus. They're in Asia Minor, where Paul's been teaching from Ephesus. 
And there are churches in all three of those cities. Now, we don't know why. We don't know how those churches were founded or who founded them. But there's churches there. And we have to believe that it is because of the ongoing influence and ministry of Paul. And these people would come to Ephesus. Like Colossae was more of a, a town than a city. It was small. And so people came to Ephesus. Like people would move to other bigger cities for different things here in the United States. But somewhere in the process, these three churches were founded. And there's this guy by the name of Epaphras. And we don't know much about Epaphras. We find the majority of it in, in the letter to the Colossians. Uh, we find a little bit about him in, in chapter, in verse 23 of Philemon. But it looks like Epaphras was, had a pastoral role in Colossae. And in Colossians, it looks like he has a pastoral role of some kind in Laodicea. So, Epaphras is in Colossae. Paul is in Ephesus. There's another guy that's in Colossae, and his name's Philemon. Philemon is a Gentile. He's rich, and he has slaves. And he ran into Paul and got saved. Well, we have to fast forward to this letter to Philemon. When this letter was written, Paul is in Rome. He's not in Ephesus anymore. He's in Rome and he's in prison. This letter was written while Paul was in prison. And while he's in prison, Epaphras from Colossae comes to see him. He goes all the way to Rome to see Paul. And he's talking to Paul about what's going on. The problems they're having in the church, the issues, the theological concerns. And so Paul's like, okay, so Paul's going to write a letter to the Colossians. And Papyrus is going to take it back. But that doesn't happen. As a matter of fact, by the end of chapter, by the end of uh, the letter to Philemon, we find out that Epaphras is a fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. So it gives us every impression that he went to talk to Paul and ended up getting locked up himself. So Epaphras isn't taking the letter back. We'll actually find out that maybe somebody is taking his place in that pastoral role while he's in Rome. Well, another thing happens while Epaphras has went to Rome to see Paul. And that is that this young man ran into Paul named Onesimus. And Onesimus was a slave but he was a runaway slave. And his master was Philemon. So, in Colossae, Epaphras goes to Rome to talk to Paul about the issues they're having. And in Colossae, Philemon's slave runs away and heads clear over to Rome to hide. And he runs into Paul. And Paul leads Onesimus to Christ. And so Paul's going to write a letter to Philemon. And so a man by the name of Tychicus and Onesimus, the slave, they take the letter from Rome back to Colossae. The letter of Colossians and this letter to Philemon. And so Onesimus is the runaway slave. 
who is going to be placing the letter from Paul into the hand of his master. So let's read the letter together, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and faith toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you, appeal to you for my child, whom I fathered while in chains, Onesimus. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful to both you and me. I am sending him back, a part of myself, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation but of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time so that you might get him back permanently no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. This is especially so to me, but even more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, accept him as you would me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self. Yes, brother, may I have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Since I am confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What a ma marvelous letter. Well, before we begin going through this, there's an elephant in the room that we need to address. And that is that Philemon is a Christian who owns slaves. And the church is meeting in his home. What in the world? How is that possible? What would that look like? Are the slaves waiting on the Christians that are there to worship? I mean, what is, what is going on? How is that possible? How can a Christian be having the church meeting his home and he owns slaves? Well, it's unconscionable to you and I. How could it possibly not have affected and attacked their very conscience? How is that possible? How can Christians have slaves? Have they? 
How is such a thing even possible? That's the elephant in the room that needs to be addressed first. Well, I'm not going to sugarcoat it and make it sound like things were different then. They weren't that much different. We know what slavery is. The Egyptian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, all of them, their entire economies was based upon slave labor. Depending upon where you were at in the Roman Empire, they're saying that 25 to 40% of the population were slaves. So in some places you were at, half of the people were slaves. A culture without slaves was unthinkable. The thought was completely foreign. People became slaves in a variety of ways. They were captured during war. Sometimes they uh, defaulted on loans and debts. Sometimes they couldn't provide for their family and so they voluntarily became slaves just to be able to survive. Parents sold their kids into slavery. Some children were born by slave parents. Some were, of course, there because they were convicted of a crime. They were kidnapped. There was piracy. And there was all kinds of slaves. They came in many varieties, you know. Uh, the vast majority ended up in these huge gangs that worked the fields or they worked the mines or they worked on massive building projects. But there was other kinds. There were civil servants and, and domestic servants. There was temple slaves. Um, gladiators. But some of these fellows were craftsmen. Some of them held high positions of responsibility. It was somewhat different. But legally, a slave had absolutely no rights whatsoever. No rights. They had no standing in court. Anything happened to them, there was nothing they could do about it. There was no legal authority. No, nothing. But even still, in the Roman Empire, a slave had the opportunity to become free. There was ways that could be accomplished. Uh, just, just think about how prevalent slavery is in the New Testament. Uh, slaves were a staple, a common fixture in at least half of the parables, it seems like. A slave cannot have two masters. Paul called himself a slave to Jesus Christ. And that guy that got his ear cut off in the Garden of Gethsemane, that was the high priest's Slave. The high priest. When Paul wrote this letter to Philemon, this was the perfect opportunity to condemn slavery. But Paul did not condemn slavery. Not because he approved of it, but because Paul understood that the church's objective 
Its primary mandate is the proclamation of the gospel. The primary objective of the church is not to get an unbelieving society to start acting like a believing society. That's actually a secondary result of the Great Commission. Our influence. In the New Testament, in general, it basically tells slaves to, to be good slaves, to be obedient. Masters, be kind. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about how how just because you are a slave, that does not mean that you are free. Think of Onesimus. Onesimus got saved, but his legal standing did not change. And the things that he did did not go away. And the debt that he owed was not gone either. Just because you become a believer. In the grand scheme of things, God is less concerned about your station in life as He is of what you do with where you're at. Your position is secondary. You've heard the term, bloom where you're planted. That's biblical. The Bible tells us that in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The biblical principles of human dignity and equality influence society in positive ways. But it takes a long time. Where we're at today is not where we were. This is Alexander McLaren. He was a, a Baptist preacher and pastor in Manchester for many, many years. He was very much against slavery, which was all around him. Back then, he wrestled with these issues. He says, and I'm just going to quote the very first part of the long paragraph, but he says, First, the message of Christianity is primarily to individuals and only secondarily to society. It leaves the units whom it has influenced to influence the mass. The primary mandate of the church, you guys, is not to feed the hungry, not to have a food pantry. That's not our primary objective. Our primary objective is not to stop global warming. Our primary objective is the proclamation of the gospel. And as we do that, you guys, our positive and convicting influence upon society is a secondary result of us fulfilling the Great Commission. We have one job to do. And that's to share Christ with the lost world. As we look here at this letter, in verse 1 we find Paul. So Paul's the author and he has identified himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Timothy is there with him, but Timothy is not identified as a prisoner, just Paul. And he's writing to Philemon, and look how he describes Philemon. He calls him a dear brother and a co-worker. 
That word co-worker is the same word that he uses to describe these fellows at the end of the letter. Look at verse 23. He says Epaphras is a fellow prisoner. And then Mark, Articus, Demas, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, they're all fellow co-workers. We remember Mark, how he failed Paul in that missionary journey. Well, here he is. Late in life, Mark's on, Mark's on, on, on the page. Mark's there. He's serving. Mark has been discipled by Peter. He made a mistake, but look where he's at. He's right there with Paul. Aristarchus, he accompanied Paul back to Jerusalem and then back to Rome. Demas, at this point, was a very, fellow, very committed fellow co-worker. Now, before Paul is executed in 2 Timothy, we find out that Demas deserted Paul, forsaken him and because he loved the world. So what's true of Demas right here is not going to be true of him later. Things can change in a Christian's life. And of course, Luke. Luke is right there. He's Paul's physician. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts. These are men of God that were there with Paul in Rome. And then we find this woman here in verse 2, Athea. That's probably most likely, we believe, uh, Philemon's wife. And then Archippus, our fellow soldier. And so when we look at Arch Arch Archippus here and in Colossians, it looks like Archippus is filling that role of being the pastor in Colossae, possibly while Epaphras is away in jail in Rome. As I said, Paul is, Philemon is, is wealthy. His house is big enough to house the entire church meeting there. And Philemon has slaves. So while he's wealthy, we also find out that Philemon is committed to Christ. Because Paul, we don't know that Paul ever actually met Philemon, but Paul has definitely heard of him. In verse 5, he says, I hear of your love and faith toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. So he is a man who loves God and he loves Christians. You might know someone who says they're a Christian, but they don't seem to love other Christians very much. They're not big on the fellowship. Well, that wasn't Philemon. Philemon loved other Christians. So this letter, you guys, is talking about a man who is a brother to Paul. Paul led Philemon to Christ. And now Philemon is finding out that he is a brother in Christ with Onesimus, his slave, and has ran away from him. This letter is pulling together a converted Pharisee, a converted wealthy Gentile, and a converted slave. The bulk of this letter is a request that Paul makes. It begins in verse 8. It goes all the way almost through to the, to the final greetings of the letter. It's a request. And this is what he asks from Philemon. He asks him to forgive Onesimus and let me pay his bill. And would you please consider sending him back to me? Paul's request, you guys, 
presumes that Philemon thinks like Paul does. He is presuming that he has the, the same theological perspective, that he's on the same page. He is counting on Philemon having a biblical worldview. This letter illustrates why it is so important for a Christian to have a biblical worldview. Because Paul's counting on it. The, the mere fact that we are repulsed at the idea of a Christian man having slaves and then the church meeting in his home. The mere fact that that bothers all of us. It makes me sick to my stomach. It's disgusting. What a disgusting picture. The mere fact that that bothers us is prima facie proof that what I've been saying is true. That the church's job is the proclamation of the gospel. And in the process of us proclaiming the gospel, and by the way, proclaiming the gospel means living the gospel. You are a living letter that people read. Some people will never read the Bible, but they will see you. And they are reading you. And you are the church. You are Christ. You are the Bible. And so part of the Great Commission is the way you live. But this is the primary objective that we have as believers. It's not my job to try to get some politician to think like Jesus and to act just like Jesus. He doesn't even know who he is. He's deaf, dumb, and blind. He is lost and dead in his sins. He doesn't even comprehend it. But what God does do with Christians is He uses us in society. And we create a positive influence that creates change. It is a secondary result of the Great Commission. And so here we have a situation where Paul is writing a letter to Philemon, a man who he has heard about but never met. And he is counting on him to be thinking like a Christian, to be looking at life from a biblical worldview. If he's not, this isn't going to work. Last Sunday, we talked about a political issue. I chose, I chose climate change. And we looked at climate change and we, we asked ourselves, do I have a biblical worldview about climate change? What's the big dilemma in, our, in America? Can, can we be environmentally safe while remaining competitive in a global economy? Now, as far as politics in America, there are Christians on both sides, primarily the Democrats and Republicans. And in these two parties, there are Christians in both parties. One's not lost and the other's saved. There's Christians in both parties. But the Republicans and the Democrats, maybe not on all issues, but when it comes to climate change, neither one of them are approaching climate change from a biblical worldview. On one end, you've got people trying to save the planet because they don't want to go extinct. It's this fever-pitched worry and dread and doom that if we don't do something and turn this ship around, we're all going to die. 
And then on the far other extreme, you have people who are like, ah, climate change isn't real because, look, if we do what they're wanting to do, we're going to fall out of our position globally. We're not going to be able to compete globally if we do all these things that these maniacs are wanting to do. Neither one of those views is biblical. Neither one of those are approaching the, the perspective of the Bible. The Bible tells us that the world is, the creation has been subjected to man and that we have a stewardship over it. So we need to do what we can for society. We need to do what, do what we can for the creation. How is, a, how is a Christian in America supposed to view all of this? Well, we know that the fallen creation, like I said, is part of our stewardship. But we also know that our primary objective is the Great Commission. And a strong America is a vehicle for the proclamation of the gospel. We talked about how America and its position today in the world is like a firewall. It's like a dam holding the water back. It's creating an environment where the gospel can flourish and go around the globe. If America falls, and it probably will someday, if America falls from its position of authority and leadership in the country, there's going to be a vacuum and there will be changes and everything and maybe chaos and somebody's going to step up. I don't know what's going to happen. I know what happens eventually. But the gospel doesn't quit being proclaimed because America doesn't exist. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying as a Christian living in America... We know that we do have a stewardship. We do have a, a, a responsibility to how we treat the world and the environment, how we treat other nations. and We have a responsibility to that. But our motivation is not to be number one so that America is the greatest of all countries and we're just, we get to lead and rule the roost. If we choose to vote or adopt policies or have favor towards things that are uh, going to enhance our global competitiveness in the economy, it's not because we just want to be great Americans and number one, it's because we see what the gospel is doing. We see what America's role is in the world right now that's furthering the spread of the gospel. That's our objective. That is a biblical worldview. Last week we talked about how maybe we could rank the political issues. I had about 20 of them up on the screen and I asked us, uh, which one's the most important? Well, if you live on a fixed income, Social Security is a pretty important issue to you. It has everything to do with how you're going to survive, the money you're going to have to live on. But is that the most important issue? Because if we adopt wild economic policies that are for the environment and we fall out of our competitive position globally and all of a sudden you can't, we can't pay you your social security anymore. Foreign policy, national debt, all kinds of things come into play that protects social security. So you can see that social security is not the most important because there's other things that support social security. There's a foundation underneath the social security system that has to be protected. So social security technically is not the most important. Can you see that? This is thinking biblically. If you are a baby inside of the womb, you don't care about the national debt or the 
the global economy, you just care whether or not your mother's going to kill you. All of a sudden, living and dying is the most important thing to you. And that all of a sudden comes a pretty strong competitor for number one, life and death. So when we approach these things, we have to think biblically. Have a biblical worldview. When you are going to work, there is all kinds of stuff in the New Testament about how your attitude is supposed to be towards your employer. Or if you're the employee, how you're supposed to treat employers. The biblical worldview is supposed to be at work. When you are at home, is your wife your servant? Do you treat her like a dog? Do you talk down to her? Do you make her feel stupid? You're probably not going to be married very long if you do that, but it's attitude, you know. When, when you're at home, you don't treat your kids like they're garbage and talk down to them. You know, the, a biblical worldview is supposed to transform our lives in every area. And so Paul has a situation. He's in Rome. He's in prison. He can't go to Colossae to talk to Philemon himself. He can't even send the pastor back. So he's going to hand the letter to the slave. And he's say, look, you've got unfinished business. You've got to go back and talk to him. Take him this letter. And he asks him, a request that we have up on the screen. Now Philemon responds to that request is going to have everything to do with whether Philemon has a biblical worldview or not. Paul is taking for granted that he does. Paul is taking for granted that Philemon has a proper value on salvation and a proper value on the mandate of the church, the proclamation of the gospel. And he's taken for granted that he understands that in Christ, all brothers and sisters are equal. Next Sunday, if all goes as planned, we're going to look at this request in detail. Let's pray.